That's been very good singing all day. I have been blessed through that singing. And I trust you have been blessed as well. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14 tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 14. And I want to commence to read at verse 28. And I will read to the end of the chapter, verse 33. So it is 2 Samuel chapter 14. Commencing to read at verse 28. And from this portion, I want to preach on the subject, When God Sets Your Field on Fire. When God Sets Your Field on Fire. Let us now hear God's word. <clears throat> so Absalom dwelt Two full years in Jerusalem, and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Job's field is near mine. And he hath barley there, go and set it in fire. And Absalom's servants set the field in fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house, and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field in fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Gershur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. May it please the Lord to bless the public reading of his word to all of our hearts for Christ's sake. We'll take a moment to bow for prayer, <clears throat> please. Our Father in heaven, we've come now to this crucial part of the service want to hear the voice of God, want to hear a word in season, a word that will make a difference in our hearts and in our lives. I am trusting thee for power, thine can never fail, words that thou thyself shall give me must and shall prevail. Blessed Holy Spirit, fall afresh in us. Blessed Holy Spirit, fall afresh on me. For Jesus' sake, amen. When God sets our field on fire, 
There are three main characters brought to our attention in these few verses before us at the end of this 14th chapter of 2 Samuel. The first is a man called Absalom, the third son of King David. And the bulk of his story is told in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19. 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 5 describes him as the most handsome man in the kingdom. The second character is Joab, David's nephew and commander-in-chief of his army. Now, he was not a man without his faults. I think we all can identify with him because we are surrounded by our own many faults. He was a very capable man, and he was a very valiant man on the battlefield. And he ought to be given credit where credit is due for his loyalty to David for about four centuries, four decades. The third character, the last but not least, is King David himself. So with these three characters set before us, it may seem a very rare and peculiar portion to preach the gospel from, but that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to preach the gospel from what we have before us here in these few verses. As one studies the Old Testament, they come across various scenes and they can be used in the context of the gospel. Of course, we have to lift them out of their proper setting and proper context to do so. And this little story before us is one of those scenes, and that's the way I want to look at it today. There are three different gospel applications in these few verses before us in this picture that is presented here by the Spirit of God. And for a time, I want to draw your attention to these three simple gospel applications. Now, are you with me? Do you understand what I'm doing here from this Old Testament portion of God's Word? The first application in this picture is very simple. If you glance there at verse 28, we can see that there is some kind of a problem here. Look at what it says. It says, so Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, listen to it, and saw not the king's face. Obviously, there was a problem, and it was a very major problem. Absalom had sinned against his father, the king. And as a result of what he did, he was separated from his father. That's the reason why we read here that he saw not the king's face. Now, what was his sin? His sin was the rejection of the king's son, Amnon, who was David's heir to the throne. And he had this young son of David's killed. So we could say he was then responsible for the death of the king's son. Now, do you get the picture? Do you see what I'm trying to get at here as we seek to develop the Word of God? There's a gospel application here. And Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, brings this to our attention because there God says through his servant, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. 
This is the gospel application from this little snippet here we have in this Old Testament story. And we all have sinned. We all have come short of the glory of God. And the reason for that is we have rejected the King's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his well-beloved Son. And our sin has been responsible for the death of his Son on Calvary's cross. So if we're out of Christ, we're under the wrath and condemnation of God. Now, the first recorded event defining Absalom's life involved his full sister Tamar and his half-brother Amnon, David's first son and heir to the throne. Now, Tamar was a beautiful woman as Absalom was a beautiful man. And the problem was that Amnon lusted after his half-sister. You've got to read this gory story in 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's a horrific story. And so he lusted after his half-sister, and she rebuffed his advances. She had no notion of him at all. Didn't want anything to do with him. And on the advice of a friend, that's the way he is described in 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, he was actually a young man called Jonadab. He was the cousin to Amnon, David's son. And upon his advice, that young man acted and he sinned against Tamar in a most defiling fashion. He had a friend. He was not a good friend. He put things into this young man's mind and this young man followed those suggestions and they ended up being a rapist. He ended up committing incest and they ended up with an untimely death. He was cut off because of his sin. You see, the lust of the flesh got hold of him. He took the advice of a friend so-called. It was not good advice. He was not a good friend. But let me remind you, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And the advice that he gives to men is very clear. Seek ye the Lord, while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. And if you seek him and give him his rightful place, it will save you from a lot of heartbreak in life, a lot of sadness, a lot of sorrow, and whatever else. Be careful who you listen to. And you may have friends gathered around you and they only appear to be friends but they don't have your interests at heart. But Jesus Christ does. He's a friend that's a stick closer than a brother. I just read a little uh, snippet there recently. Uh, I think this was a radio personality and he was telling the story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. It's a bit gory but I felt it very appropriate for the meeting tonight and dealing with this particular subject of lust. It's very grisly, but it offers an insight into the consuming, self-destructive nature of, of sin and, and lust. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds more blood, another layer of blood to the knife, and another and another until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen uh, blood. 
Next, the hunter fixes his knife into the ground with the blade facing upwards. Do you get the picture? Do you see it now? When the wolf follows its sensitive nose to the source of the scent, he discovers the bait, and he begins to lick it up, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Harder and harder the wolf licks the blade. So great becomes the craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize at that instant at which the insatiable thirst has been satisfied by his own blood. His appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow in those Arctic conditions. It's a fearful thing that people can be consumed by their own lusts. Only God's grace can save people from that kind of sin, that kind of depravity that's evident in the human hearts of men and women. And so we can see this young man, we can see his sin and so on. And so he tricked David to allow Tamar uh, to come into his quarters. He pretended to be sick. Maybe he was lovesick. I think that he really did uh, suffer from a dose of being lovesick. And, and he said, could you send uh, my sister and uh, she can bring me something nice to eat and, and so on. So David consented. that he was none the wiser what the, the, the plot was, what the plan was. And, and so when she brought the, the provisions, he said to the rest of his servants, go out, leave me alone with my sister. I want to spend time with my sister. And when the servants were departed, he forced himself. That's what the Bible says. He defiled her in a most horrible fashion. And then he turned against her. He thought it was love, but it wasn't. It was lust. And he put her out. He says, get out of this place. Shut the door. Lock her out. And when Absalom... Her brother heard about this. He took her to his own apartment, to his own home, and there she dwelt probably for the rest of her day. No one would want her after that. No husband would want her after that ordeal. For the next two years, Absalom nursed that hatred of his half-brother, and he cunningly arranged for him to come to his house. His house. He was now showing some cunning. And uh, he said, I want you to come. And he got the permission from King David to allow Amnon to come to a feast that he was having in his own house. And so he came. And at a certain point during the celebrations, Absalom said to his servants, I want you to go now and I want you to kill my half-brother. That's it. And out of fear of his father, he escaped Israel after the murder, and he ran away to Gershur, where he stayed for the next three years. So he sinned, and he knows he's done wrong. He's afraid of the father, and he runs, and he tries to hide, and he's on the run for three years. But David hasn't forgotten about his sin. He hasn't forgotten about the murder. But the Bible does say, strangely, that David longed to go forth to Absalom, 
verse 37. After all, it, it fathers heart, you see. And if you're a father and your child has done wrong, you're still a parent. You still act like a father with a broken heart, a tender heart. You long for your child to be right with God. But he did nothing, it seems, to resolve the issue. Joab, he was involved in a cunning way, and he negotiated where, on the behalf of Absalom, uh, with the result that Absalom was brought back again from the far country. He was in the far country, you see, just like the prodigal. And he came back again to Jerusalem, but he had to live in his own house. The king hadn't forgiven him. He wasn't reconciled to the king. It was like a, a half-reconciliation, but it wasn't really the ideal thing. And that situation prevailed for a couple of years. And Joab, he was the one responsible for uh, bringing Absalom back. But Absalom saw not the king's face. He had to live in his own house. He put up with these arrangements for about two years, hoping that Joab would bring about the reconciliation with his father. But he knew that being banished from the king's presence meant he wasn't expected to be their heir to the throne. And Joab must have realized Absalom's great ambition. He wanted the throne more than anything else. He wanted to get rid of his father and he wanted to sit upon the throne of Israel. And Joab didn't want to give the impression that he was under the sway of this uh, young man, egotistic young man. And so the wise general stayed away. He gave him a wide birth. And you know there are some people we need to give a wide birth, a wide birth to. Some things we need to give a wide birth to. Because it can ruin us. It can destroy us. And so we can see this is the situation that prevailed at this time. Absalom was not a moral young man. He was unmoral. He thought he could get away with murder. And then he thought he could get away with, uh, uh, with burning uh, Joab's field as well. As long as he was getting away with it, that was right. Then that brings me to the second application in this particular picture. We know that sometimes God gets our attention by setting our barley field on fire. God was using his word at times to speak to Israel, but when the people of Israel hardened their hearts against the word of God, God had to send affliction. You think about Manasseh. He reigned for 55 years. He was an evil, sinful, wicked man. And he did horrible things. He pulled down certain things and he erected other things in defiance of the God of heaven. And the Lord allowed the enemy to come to carry him away. And he was carried away. And then the time of his affliction, he turned to God. He didn't turn to God through the ministry of the prophets. He turned to God when affliction came. When he was hurting. When he was a prisoner. And he prayed to the Lord. And the amazing thing about it is this. The Lord heard his prayer. And the Lord saved him. And the Lord returned him again to Jerusalem. 
and he set in place certain reformations for the glory of God. After all those years living as a sinner in the sight of God and dishonoring God in so many ways and so many different times, yet in his affliction, and sometimes God can use affliction. If the word doesn't have success, he can apply affliction to make the word really sink into the heart. And that's what happened in this man's case, Manasseh. And we can see the situation here in the story before us. After two years of waiting, Absalom, after returning from exile, he had summoned Joab on two different occasions at least to go to represent him in the presence of King David. He had sent messages to him. Now, I'm not sure whether those messages were written out or whether they were verbal messages. But the Bible tells us that he sent these messages to Joab to come to him. And Joab refused, you see. And Absalom decided that he needed to take drastic action that was necessary. He wanted to get Job's attention. So he commanded his servants to go. Job has a barley field near to my property. I want you to go and I want you to set his barley field on fire. And when that happened, that got Job's attention. Job's attention. It got his attention. And the next thing we read, that this man came into the presence of Absalom to his house. And when you think about how Absalom got Joab's attention, it brings before us how God gets man's attention. He may send a written message, he may send a verbal message through the preacher of the word of God, and God might be trying to get your attention tonight in this service. And Job kept putting Absalom off until the Lord allowed Absalom to set Job's field on fire. That got his attention. And the law required that an arsonist repay the owner of the field whose crop he had destroyed. Exodus chapter 22. So the people knew about the fire. And that gave Joab an excuse, if you like, to go into the presence of Absalom. And people would think nothing else about it at all. The field belonged to, to Joab, not to Absalom. But ultimately, the field belonged to the Lord. And everything you have and everything I have belongs to the Lord. And the Lord sometimes can set our barley field in fire. This was something that was precious, something that was valuable to Joab. And the Lord had a right to do whatever he so desires to do. The field belonged to him anyway. He allowed it to happen. Maybe your barley field is smoldering tonight. Maybe a loving God is requesting your attention and he's allowing your barley field to be set on fire for this reason. The sooner you get into him, the better for everyone concerned. So here we see Absalom, the king's son, sending a message. It's a very positive message. As I say, I'm not sure whether it was written or whether it was in verbal form, but as far as the record is concerned, it was sent twice. On both occasions, Joam said no. He wouldn't come. 
Now, here's the gospel application. We have another king's son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And through his own precious word, he has sent to you many written messages. You've heard the message preached time and time again in the Sunday school, the Bible class. He sent many preachers to you with a full message of salvation, warning you of wrath and judgment to come. He sent message after message, and you're just like Joab, and you will not come. In the word of God, we have a number of instances. We have over there in... uh, Matthew 23, verse 37. Remember when Jesus was addressing Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he said, how oft would I have gathered thy children and ye would not. They wouldn't accept him. And in AD 70, Jerusalem was burned by fire, leveled to the ground, and salt it was salt and the trees were all destroyed. And, And many thousands died when the Romans came as a result of rejecting the king. Time came when they suffered for their rejection. They would not come, you see, in the past. But then the Lord speaks in Matthew, John 5, 40. He, he, he addressed people and he said to them, you will not come to me that you might have life. You will not come now. You didn't come in the past and you will not come now. And then he also says, in John seven thirty six, ye shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am, thither ye cannot come. So there's a build up here. You would not come in the past, you will not come now, and a time will come in the future when you'll not be able to come. And so the invitation was given to Joab, and he refused the invitation until the field would not and smoke. That got his attention. That brought him to the king's son. You think of Moses that day out there on the backside of of the the desert and they stand in there by an ordinary bush. Nothing extraordinary about it until it was set in fire. And the Lord set that bush in fire to get his attention. It made a difference to him, you see. Remember the man called Jairus. His daughter was sick. And uh, he was moved to go to Jesus. She grew worse and then she died. But that situation brought him to Jesus. You think about the woman of Canaan. She had a, a daughter who was possessed of the devil. That brought her into contact with Christ. And sometimes the Lord has got to send something like this. He's got to take someone that we love, someone that is precious to us, something that is precious to us. He's got to set it in fire. He's got to take it away to bring us to our senses, to bring us to the cross, to bring us to Christ. And when the woman came, she brought the need of her daughter to Jesus and Jesus healed from a distance. And when the mother returned home, she found the great miracle wrought by grace. The Lord followed Jairus to his house, put the people out who were there ministering and mourning, and he did a great work of grace in the house. He healed close up, or he can heal at a distance. And you're here tonight in the house of God, and you've got a need. And the Lord is speaking to you now tonight through that particular need that you're facing, and that burden upon your heart and your life. And he's speaking to you through that circumstance. And he's saying, I'm setting your field in fire. I will consume it. And I'm coming as a gracious, loving father to you. 
to woo you, to win you, to get your attention, that you might seek me for salvation, to call upon me while I am near. Now you know what's happening in your life. You know the things that you're facing, the things that you've come through. You know full well. I don't know anything about your history. Here's a word from God. He said in your field and fire to get your attention to bring you to the cross. Another message, another opportunity, another Joab stunt. No, I'm not coming. But the Lord knows how to bring you. Absalom, the king's son, knew how to bring Joab to himself. I'm not saying Absalom is a type of Christ. God forbid that's not the case. But there's a parallel here. There's gospel truth here. So we've looked at these two applications and I've got to come to an end. There's a third application. Finally, once again by way of Joab's intercession, Joab goes into the presence of the king, that is David, and uh, he explains things. He sets the two alternatives before the king that Absalom said before him when he visited him. He said, let the king forgive me and accept me in a sight, or if I've done wrong, let him execute me. I can't live under house arrest any longer. Two alternatives. Forgive me or judge me. And then the gospel, the gospel preacher sets before the congregation two alternatives, forgiveness or judgment, heaven or hell. That's really what we're getting at now. And so Joab acts as intermediary. He acts as the mediator, if you like. He goes in to represent the guilty one before the king, before the father, you see. Do you get the picture? And Job knew it fine well that the people would never permit the royal personage that they loved so well to be judged or anything to happen to him. He knew that only full well. But what would David, how would he react to the whole situation? So he goes in to represent Absalom. He does so, and David then sent for Absalom to come, and the Bible tells us that the father kissed the son. Oh, what about the prodigal? What happened to him when he came home? The father kissed the son, and the son kissed the father. It's the kiss of reconciliation. Okay, as far as it goes, it's good. As far as it goes, it's good. But the story doesn't end there. Because as far as Job was concerned, as far as Absalom was concerned, he had a hidden agenda and he was determined to seize David's throne. But now that he was free, you see, he used the opportunity well to promote himself. He could be visible in the city. He could enjoy the adulation of the people, the crowds in the city. And at the same time, quietly organize sympathizers for his rebellion. David was about to lose his throne. He was about to lose his concubines. He was about even to lose his advisor, Ahithophel. He was about to lose his son, 
This was one of the darkest hours in David's history. So Absalom began stealthily to undermine the position of the king. He set himself up as a judge. And when the people came, he said, how can I help you? Oh, the king's too busy. If you have a problem, bring it to me and I'll do the best I can to resolve the issue. And in this way, you see, he deceived the people. He got the people drawn away from David. He's a schemer. His heart has never been changed. He's gone through all the, the, the emotions of this uh, whole thing of reconciliation, but his heart has never been changed. There's no record of him bringing a sacrifice for a sin. No, there's no evidence of change in his life at all. About four years later, he asked permission to go to Hebron where he secretly arranged to be proclaimed king in the place of David. The conspiracy strengthened and the number of Absalom's followers greatly increased and David feared for his own life. And then the time came when David barefooted crossed the Kidron Valley. Is this not a familiar scene? Crossed the Kidron Valley, climbed the Mount of Olives, can we not see Christ in this? Here's David rejected. He's rejected by his own people. He's a cast out now. A very low time in his experience. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was arrested, he crossed the Kidron Valley. The Kidron was in full flow at that time. It was a time of the Passover. That's not without its significance. Thousands and thousands of animals would have been sacrificed and the blood of those sacrifices would have been flowing out from the temple through that channel down into the Kidron Valley. So when Christ crossed, crossed the Kidron Valley, it was bloody. He's on his way now to the cross to suffer and to bleed and die. And he goes down into that bloody water all the way to the cross, you says. He's going to shed his precious blood. He's going to give his life as a ransom. What a night of rejection that was. There's a man called Hushai, David's friend. There's a good friend. And David said, you don't come with me. You're too valuable. You stay in Jerusalem and you be my eyes and ears in Jerusalem. And you keep an eye on Absalom. You tell me what's happening. God, in his grace, had someone there, David's friend. There's a friend that's taken close to the brother. Ahithophel, he was the one who turned from being David's familiar friend to becoming an enemy. He sided with Absalom against Christ because of David's relationship with Bathsheba related to him. And Ahithophel was all and up in arms and he says you appoint me and I will go after the king and we'll hit the king only we'll not worry about anybody else you give me the authority and I'll do it and God in his divine providence had it so arranged and so planned that David's friend would be there and Absalom said in the providence of God again what is your advice we've heard what Ahithophel wants us to do what do you want to do and Absalom decided to take the advice of Hushai. And when Ahithophel realized that his counsel had been ignored, what did he do? 
He went home and he set things in order and then he hanged himself. Is this not a familiar scene as well? The familiar friend that Jesus had in the assembly of the, of the disciples, a man called Judas. He made a mistake. He did the wrong thing. His heart was blinded by sin. And when he realized that he had made an awful mistake, he went out. What did he do? He hanged himself. And you see, that decision that Absalom made allowed David to organize things and gave him the opportunity to launch a counterattack, to retake the kingdom again, to muster his troops. And the time came when Joab and his forces went out after Absalom. And David said, listen, deal gently with the young man. Deal gently with him. But the time came when Absalom was riding upon his horse's ass. And I told you earlier, he was looked upon as the most beautiful person in the kingdom. And one of the features was long hair. So he's trying to escape now. His day, the day of judgment is upon him now, you see. He's on the ass. He's on his, his, his mount. And he's trying to escape. And all of a sudden, he gets caught up with his hair in the boughs of the tree. He's struggling. The end is nigh. The end has come. The deceiver has found out at long last. He's about to die. He's ready to go to hell. He's about to be lost forever. And who comes on the scene? The one that had been recognized as the mediator before. He takes arrows and he casts them into the body of Absalom and he dies there. The one who previously had been the mediator who represented Absalom before the king now becomes his judge. He's dead. He's come to the end of the road. He's lost, he's damned. No wonder David cried, Oh, Absalom, my son, well, God, I died for thee. He realized his son was in hell. They cast him into a pit. They buried him there. Some people wanted to have a celebration, but Joab said, No, this is the day of the, the death of the king's son. He wasn't real after all. He died the death of a fool. And they perished. But even in this can we not see gospel truth. The sinner who's guilty before God needs a mediator. Needs one to represent them in the presence of God the Father. The one that they've sinned against. And that person is Jesus Christ. The mediator of the covenant who shed his blood on Calvary's cross to make a full atonement for our sins. You received and believe on the word of the mediator and trust in him for salvation because if you don't then you will appear in his presence in the presence of the great judge of all men and he will have the last say and he will say to all those out of Christ the, the, the goats in the left hand side depart from me cursed I never knew you what does it say there shall be weeping and wailing 
and gnashing of teeth. Oh, this is the gospel message of saving faith in Christ. God hath provided in the person of Jesus Christ a mediator who went to the cross and died on behalf of the people in covenant relationship with him by the shedding of his blood. And the invitation is extended in the gospel for them to come to Christ. And by the Holy Spirit, he can bring you tonight to the foot of the cross. You can put your faith and confidence in the mediator of the covenant or go out into eternity to face him as your judge. As your judge. The one that you have refused to come to. The one that you have rejected all of your life. Even now, you're saying, no, you're saying, away with this man. I will not have this man to reign over me. Away with him, crucify him. The day will come when he will say, I never knew you. Be gone. Depart. Go. Go. Go away. I have no time for you now because you have no time for me. And the Bible will say you reap whatever you sow. So there's gospel truth in this little story before us here in the Word of God. Pick up on that gospel truth and believe the gospel and trust in Christ for salvation. May God bless his word with we'll bow for prayer. Father in heaven, take what has been of thyself and use it for thy glory to bring praise to thy threshold name. And may the word of God be protected tonight. Protect thy word sown, the seed that has been sown. Don't let the fowls of the air come and take away that good seed. Protect it under the blood of Christ. And may that seed sow and bring forth fruit to the glory of God. Dismiss us with thy blessing and in thy fear. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for God's eternal glory.